0: Father, I ask now that you would help me, that I would not speak any error. And I pray that nothing would be out of proportion to your word. I pray that affections among these young people and me would be fitting. They would be in proportion to the greatness of what we see in the word. I pray that some who are outside Christ, who don't have genuine saving faith that treasures you above all things, would be saved. I pray that a thousand people would become Paul type, Missionaries. I pray that all of us would become radical, self sacrificing, Christ exalting, Bible saturated world Christians. I pray that you would create the miracle of hearts that are able to sing in prison. And I ask this now in Jesus name. Amen. This conference is built on the conviction that the Word of God cannot fail and that your life aligned with that purpose, the Word, cannot be wasted. Those two convictions. The Word of God cannot fail and your life in line with that word cannot be wasted. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return, but water the earth causing it to bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so will my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, It will accomplish that which I purpose and succeed in the thing for which I sent it. His word cannot fail. And your life in devotion to that word and in line with that word cannot be wasted. And it definitely will be wasted if you don't line up with his word. So those are the convictions at the root of this conference. It cannot fail. Jesus said, This gospel of the kingdom will be preached throughout the whole world. Not maybe preached, might be preached. This gospel of the kingdom will be preached throughout the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. It's gonna happen. And your life connected with that will not be wasted. I am God. This is what it means to be God, right? Isaiah 46. I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying my counsel will stand. I will accomplish all my purpose. That's what it means for him to be God. He cannot fail. His word cannot fail. His purposes cannot fail. Therefore, your life aligned with that purpose cannot be wasted, and it will be wasted if you're not in line. So I want to testify, young people, just from my own personal life and experience, you do not want to be my age and look back and say, I wasted it. You don't. I promise you, you don't want to be my age and look back and say, I blew it. I just spent it on all the wrong things. It was a waste. You don't want to be there in 60 years. (laughs) I'm so thankful that I grew up in a home from age 6 to 18, where every morning I walked into the kitchen, and hanging over the sink was a little plaque. I was going to bring it, but it's made out of glass, and I just thought my heart would be broken if I, if I broke it, so I didn't bring it. But here we are now, this is 70 years later, and, and it's over my window in my study. So every morning I walk into the kitchen and look at this little black glass painted plaque. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. I'm so thankful that every morning I saw that. I I can't remember a time when I did not pray, God, don't let me waste my life. It just scared me as a teenager. It scared me as a college student. Don't let me waste it. Make it count. I have no idea what that looks like, but don't let me waste it. That was a gift from God. And I believe, I'm looking out on you now, I believe that if you will pray that from your heart, He will answer you. And You don't know yet what it's going to look like, But you know for sure, do you not? You don't want to be my age and look back and say, that was a waste. It was a gift. And I pray God will give you that gift. So this conference is built on the conviction that God's word, his saving purposes in the gospel globally and personally cannot fail, and that your life in line with those purposes, cannot be wasted. So, my assignment now in this message is to do what everybody else has done in a different part of the Bible. So, my task and my assignment is to go to the book of Acts and to watch God triumph over Satan and sin and opposition as the gospel spreads from the day of Pentecost or the resurrection of Jesus for about 35 years to Rome. And at the end of Acts, Paul is in Rome and he's passionately longing to be vindicated so that he can go to Spain. And that's where it ends, they kill him there. So the book of Acts picks up at the end of the four Gospels, where they leave off. It takes us through Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, Syria, Asia Minor or Turkey, Greece, and Rome, with Spain on the horizon. Here's an amazing text. It won't look amazing, but it is. I'll tell you why. So this is... uh, Romans 15 and excerpts from verses 19 to 23. From Jerusalem, this is Paul now writing to the Romans, from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum, now that's northwest Greece, stretching through the Balkans into northern Italy, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. I no longer have any room for work in these regions. <laughs> Are you kidding me? That's just crazy. I have no room for work from Jerusalem up through Syria, across Turkey, down through Greece and up to Northern Italy. I'm done. I have no, there's no place for me to work here. What could he possibly mean? He wrote to Timothy, do the work of an evangelist. Meaning there's lots and lots of unsaved people between Jerusalem and Italy. And Paul doesn't have any room for work. Here's the reason. He's a missionary. He's not a pastor. Timothy's a pastor. Get the the job of evangelism done in your city. I don't have any room for work here. And he explains in verse 20, God's call is on my life to preach the gospel where it has never been named. That's Spain. That's where I'm going. So when I prayed a few minutes ago that God would make a thousand of you Paul-type missionaries, that's what I had in mind. I don't expect all of you in this room to do that. You shouldn't. There's all kinds of reasons why we need radical, Christ-exalting, Bible-saturated, God-centered Christians in every local church everywhere in the world who aren't going across cultures. That's a glorious calling. But I can't look on you without longing and praying that a thousand of you would say, can't explain it. But at Cross 24, something happened. I want to go where the gospel isn't there already. There isn't a church that can evangelize, so I want to go plant one. One of the points of the book of Acts is that the gospel spreads invincibly, triumphantly, over every kind of obstacle. So I read through the book of Acts to get ready for this message and marked 50 places. I could have taken my text from 50, that's 5 places in the book of Acts where the gospel hits an obstacle and then gets over it. So you should read the book of Acts and just mark them. Be a good study with your small group sometime. Just all the places, all the kinds of obstacles that are hit and then how it gets over them. But that's not, that's not the only point. It's not the deepest point. It's not the most amazing point of what I see in the book of Acts. The the most amazing point that I want to linger on with you is that Luke in writing Acts wants to show us that God makes human sin and demonic opposition serve the advancement of the gospel. He doesn't, just get, he, doesn't just get, he doesn't just get over it. He predestines and plans human sin and satanic opposition. And it becomes the advancement of the gospel. That's what I want us to see because that's deeper and more amazing. So if you want to be aligned with God's purposes so that you don't waste your life, I think you need to grasp, embrace in your mind and in your heart this biblical reality, both globally, it's true globally, and it's true in your life, in your personal life. Satan, as we heard earlier, is not a free agent. He's not autonomous. He's not ultimately self-determining. He's on a leash, held by God. And he does nothing in this world that is not according to God's plan because God can jerk his leash anytime he pleases to stop him doing anything he does. So Satan under the sovereignty of God is a servant of Christians. Now I'm not preaching on second Corinthians. So let me just briefly illustrate from second Corinthians 12 and trust that you'll look it up. If you, if you aren't familiar with the situation, remember that Paul had been caught up into heaven, third heaven, He didn't know whether he was in the body or out of the body, he comes back and God sees and knows this is dangerous spiritually for Paul to have that kind of experience. And so God appoints a thorn in the flesh. Remember that? a thorn in the flesh. We don't know what it was, but here's the, here's the kicker in verse, which verse is it? Seven. It's called a messenger of Satan. Hmm. Now, Satan's design for this thorn in Paul's flesh, whatever it was, it was was painful, it's a thorn. Paul asked three times for Jesus to take it away, and three times Jesus said no. This messenger of Satan, Satan's design and purpose for the thorn was Paul's misery and Paul's ineffectiveness, and Paul's wasting his life by complaining about the thorn. That's Satan's design. That wasn't God's design. God's design was to protect him from pride. He said, I don't want you to be conceited, to make him holy, and to show that God's grace, Christ's grace, is sufficient for him. So if you get a hold of this now, this reality that God in serving the holiness and the pride free usefulness of Paul uses Satan, you will have hold of something that will make you very stable, very strong, and able to interpret a hundred things in your life that didn't make sense otherwise. Oh, how powerfully it will serve you if you embrace this in the years to come. Personally, globally, all the losses of your life. My goodness, if we knew them all right now, looking across the number of people who are here, the death of your mom to cancer. If I ask you to stand, how many of you would stand? I'm not going to do that, but that's true in this room right now. The death of your brother in a car accident, you know who you are. The, the, the turning of friends against you. You thought they were your friends, and then you find out they're talking about you behind their back. Disappointments with the way you look. Hundreds of you don't like the way you were born. I don't like my hair, I don't like my figure, I don't like my height, I don't like my complexion. I don't like me at all, I'm just, compared to them, I'm a loser. And I'm saying that mom's death, that brother's death, that loss of friendship and that dissatisfaction with the way you look are all designed by God to make you strong and designed by Satan to make you miserable. And if you live with misery, you're saying, I agree with Satan. It's God's plan to make you strong. So when you, when you go into the world to fight the devil and to fight unbelief and to reach the nations, Paul says, put on all the armor of God. And then once you've put it on, he says, be strong in the Lord, not in your strength, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. So God is sovereign over all those things, all those losses, all those apparent tragedies in your life. And they're all designed for your fruitfulness, for your strength. So if you get this, then you will be an invincible Christian. And that's what I'm after. I want you to be invincible Christians who cannot be blown over. Your boat can't be made to sink. It's got the ballast of sovereign truth in the bottom and you stand. God makes human sin and satanic opposition serve the advance of the gospel. That's the point I'm making. So for the purposes now of becoming that kind of strong person, I would like to give you maybe three glimpses in the book of Acts of how Luke makes this plain. Number one, the most important event in the book of Acts and the interpretation of the event in the book of Acts with regard to God making satanic opposition and human sin serve the gospel is in chapter four, verses 27 to 28. And the surprising thing about it is that it doesn't just say that God makes satanic opposition and human sin serve the gospel It says God makes satanic opposition and human sin create the gospel. Let's read it. Truly in this city, there were gathered together. So, talking about Jerusalem, this is the saints praying and interpreting the death of Jesus. Truly in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles, the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So throw Judas in for good measure. Satan, it says in Luke 22:3, 3, entered into the heart of Judas. Why? Because Judas would initiate the misery of Jesus, and that was Satan's goal. Make Jesus as miserable, as agonized, As possible because I have not been able to succeed in diverting him from the cross like I originally intended and therefore I'm gonna make this as hard for him as it can possibly be Judas. So Satan moves into Judas and sets everything in motion. And then Herod kicks in with his mockery. And then Pilate kicks in with his expediency. And then the mob kicks in with crucify him, crucify him. And then the soldiers kick in, finish it off with the nails and the late spike. And this text says, Herod, Pontius Pilate, the Gentiles, that's the soldiers, and the peoples of Israel, that's the crucify him, crucify him did what your hand and your plan predestined to take place. They killed the Son of God. There is no greater sin than the murder of the Son of God. God predestined the worst sin. God planned the worst sin. Because what happened? The gospel was created. The gospel is Christ died for us. That's how God got it done. So the book of Acts is not just saying that God takes demonic opposition and human sin and uses it to make the gospel triumphant, which it does, but rather the gospel came into being through Satan's failed efforts, failed in that Christ died but he rose again and he saves us from sin. The gospel came into being through predestined human sin and predestined planned satanic opposition. So my thesis statement that I can write down is the sovereign God of the universe, predestined and planned satanic opposition and human sin in the creation of the gospel and henceforward in its invincible spread. That's my point in this message. The sovereign God of the universe predestined, I'm getting those words now from verse 28, predestined and planned. Those two words are in the text. They're not mine. They're not my theological mumbo jumbo. That's just clear Bible. Predestined and planned satanic opposition, Judas, and human sin, Herod, Pilate, soldiers, mobs, and thus brought about the creation of the gospel. And henceforth, the spread of the gospel over every satanic obstacle. That's my point. And my urging to you is. Keeping this ballast. Remember last night, I talked about ballast in your boat. Keeping this ballast in your boat will be the key to staying afloat and not wasting your lives. So let's watch God carry this forward. And this is where I have to be totally selective. I'm only gonna select two from 40. Watch God carry forward this principle, this reality of God planning, predestining, satanic opposition, human sin, in order to bring about his saving purposes invincibly. So at the end of chapter 7, I won't, I won't have you look these up, but just listen and later you can check out the texts. At the end of chapter 7, Stephen full of the Holy Spirit, full of faith, full of grace, full of power. Those four words. Great man. My middle name is Stephen. I love it. I wish if I had my life to start over again, I'd sign all my books, John Stephen Piper, but I blew that. Stephen. Thank you, Daddy. I love Stephen. So they kill him. Now He comes to the end of this sermon, and you'd think he would know better. Be careful. This is chapter 7, verse 52. Your fathers, picture him now, he's just full of grace, full of the Holy Spirit, full of power. Your fathers killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you now betrayed and murdered. And when they heard this, Luke says, they stopped their ears and rushed at him and threw him out of the city and stoned him to death. And the last thing he said was, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. So Stephen was the first martyr after Jesus. And then comes the inevitable humanly unintended consequences that must have gotten, at least for some people, Stephen's reputation in hot water. Because this is what the first verse of the next chapter says. There arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. On the day that Stephen was martyred, It got worse, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Can you imagine people saying, why didn't he just control his tongue? Kevin touched on this with all those excuses Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego might have brought up. Well, we got families. You know, there might be a persecution unleashed if I, if I speak as bluntly as I'm going to speak. Luke doesn't give a whiff of criticism of Stephen in this book. Do you know how many people that involved who had to leave Jerusalem? According to chapter 4, verse 4, many of those who had heard the word believed And the number of men, that's males, you can tell in Greek, the number of males came to about 5,000. So now we've got 5,000 male Christians in Jerusalem. So let's just conservatively say, count women and children, 10,000. So on the day that Stephen was martyred, 10,000 Christians were driven out of their homes and out of their city. Forced migration is not pretty. Ask 10 million people today. Refugees all over the world. It is a horrible experience. And there they go, because of the persecution that broke out after this martyrdom. So, let's sum up what's happened here. A spirit-filled, it says he was filled with the spirit, a spirit-filled, Bible-saturated message is delivered by a godly man, and Satan fills the rage of the hearers and a mob storms on him, grabs him, takes him out, stones him to death. Paul was there watching. And the effect of that horrible event is that nobody felt sorry for Christians. They hated them the more and drove 10,000 of them out of their homes all over the region. Do you think that God was in heaven looking down and saying, good night. Now what am I going to do? Wringing his hands that his precious people, the apple of his eye, who he had just died for in Jesus Christ, have been driven out. I'm just so frustrated. You know that's not the way God thought or felt. Here's what God was doing. Verse 4 of chapter 8. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. <laughs> Let's just sink in. The word preach euangelizomenoi That's the word for Gospeling, gospeling means telling good news. So here go 10,000 people just driven out of their homes and what are they doing? Where were you, God? Don't you love Stephen? He was the best. What in the world have you done? Our kids, we don't have a place to stay. We're having a hard time finding food. You know what they were saying everywhere they went? Jesus Christ died for sinners. If you believe on Jesus, all your sins will be forgiven. If you believe on Jesus, you can have eternal happiness in the presence of the creator of the universe. Come, everyone, join our joy, joy, joy. So what I, what it, this conference for me is a chance to look at as many as I can and say, don't you want to be like that? I do. I'm not nearly like that as much as I should be, but that's what I want to be like. I don't want to be a grumbler, I don't want to be a complainer, I don't ever, ever, ever want to get in God's face with criticism. I want to rejoice in all that He's done for me, no matter how hard life is. Now, we're not done yet. Chapter 11, this one I think we've got for the screen, verse 19. Now, those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen, namely all these homeless refugees, traveled as far as as far as uh, Antioch. It's up in Syria, you know where that is. Speaking the word to no one except Jews, but there were some of them who, on coming to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists, also preaching the Lord Jesus. I read that wrong, didn't I? They spoke to the Hellenists also, comma, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. This was, in the book of Acts, the greatest missionary breakthrough of the first century. The penetration of the gospel outside Israel, non-Jews, in Antioch, bringing Gentiles to Christ. And Antioch then becomes the missionary hub of the Roman Empire for a long time. So the death of Stephen, The persecution of thousands of Christians resulted in the gospel moving to the nations. Global missions was the result of persecution and displacement, forced immigration. In other words, God makes Satanic opposition and human sin serve the advancement of the gospel. Don't ever look at a situation that looks like a setback and think that's the last word, ever. Not if you believe in this kind of God. That must have looked absolutely devastating to have Stephen go down, 10,000 people driven out. What in the world is God doing? Answer? He's getting the church off its rear end to obey the Great Commission, which they hadn't been doing because Jesus said, go make disciples out of all nations, and they were just talking to Jews, and they hadn't left Jerusalem. One more illustration. It happened in northern Greece. You know the town of Philippi, and Paul comes preaching the gospel to the town of... Philippi, and he's so effective that Lydia is converted and a a slave girl who was used by her masters to tell fortunes and made them a lot of money. And when Paul cast the demon out and rescued her into life, they were furious. So verses 23 and 24 of Acts 16, When they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, Paul and Silas, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them in the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. So what was Paul's response to this turn of events? Did he say, God, I thought you were sovereign. I've been serving you as faithfully as I can. I get reviled and beaten and whipped and imprisoned almost everywhere I go. And I'm doing it in devotion to you. We were making amazing progress in Philippi. A church was coming into being. And here I sit in this dungeon with my legs in stocks. You talk like that? Paul never talked like that. Never. I get so tired of people telling people it's okay to get angry at God. It's not okay. Ever. It's a sin to be angry at God. It's not a sin to tell God you're angry if you're angry. Can you make that distinction? Don't add hypocrisy to wickedness. It's never right to get angry at God. And if anybody had a right to get angry at God, it was the Apostle Paul. My goodness. Just read 2 Corinthians. It breaks your heart. It just breaks your heart. City after city after city, beaten, stoned, shipwrecked, imprisonment. God, I'm trying to be faithful. It hurts. Everywhere I go, I get hurt. What was his response? Here it is in front of the screen. Verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. I'm just undone when I read that. I'm just undone. (laughs) I mean, ask my wife. I'm a complainer. So I want to ask you, I'm not going to ask you if you're like that. I want to say, don't you want to be like that? I mean, that's just a miracle kind of person. That's just a miracle kind of person. You've just been beaten with rods. You've been unjustly treated. I mean, you get your back up when you're treated unjustly. You're taught to get your back up when you're treated unjustly in our culture. Jesus didn't teach you to get your back up when you're treated unjustly. He taught this. Paul is an embodiment of the beauty of the resources of the Holy Spirit by the gospel saying, I'm the richest man in the world, and it'll be a vapor's breath before I inherit the universe. let sing, Silas. let sing. So let's just be like that. Surely in this room, that's what God wants to do tonight. He wants you to right there to sit and say, well, I'm sure not like that. That's right. Neither am I. I want to be. I want to be that kind of person. So whatever it takes, do it in my life. That's a dangerous prayer, I admit. But oh, it's worth it. I just love to be around people who walk in and out of suffering, and they never raise their fist at God, ever. They're always deeply submissive. I'm watching it happen online with some brothers right now. You you know who I'm talking about, some of you. Just deeply, deeply submissive as they walk through the most horrible waters. What was God up to in putting Paul in prison? Here's what he was up to. Jesus said in uh, John 10, 16, I have other sheep that are not of this fold, this Jewish fold. I must bring them also. So Jesus is looking out at the world, the Gentile world, and he sees his sheep out there, his elect. I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must, that's why I came, I must bring them also. This jailer was one of those sheep. So how does God do it? There's an earthquake. All the doors fly open. All the bonds come off all the prisoners' feet. And that night, salvation comes to the house of the jailer. And Paul saw it. He was singing in advance. He knew God was in charge. He's got a reason for why we're here, Silas. Don't know what it is yet, but... Okay, let's do it. What do we have to do? Don't let any prisoners escape. Go to his house, preach the gospel. I'll save them all. That's what he was doing through the satanic opposition and human sin. So let's end where we started. This conference is built on the conviction that the word of God, the purposes of God in the gospel, globally and personally, cannot fail. They cannot fail because God is sovereign. God is infinitely wise, infinitely good, infinitely strong. He has no competitors. He always wins. His word cannot fail, and your life in alignment with that word cannot be wasted. But that's not the main thing we've seen. Underneath that, supporting it, we've seen in this book that even deeper than that is this. The sovereign God of the universe, predestined and planned satanic opposition and human sin in the very creation of the gospel, the death of Jesus. And then, from that day on, that same sovereignty has taken all the satanic opposition and all the powers of hell and all of human sin and made it serve the invincible spread of the gospels to all the people, peoples of the world. So my closing plea to you, please receive it, as much as God gives you grace to receive it, is align your life, align your life with God's sovereign, saving, global purposes. Let this be the ballast in your boat, because with this ballast of God's sovereign saving purposes over sin and Satan in your boat, you will stay afloat in the coming decades no matter what. You will. You won't. Your boat won't tip over if you embrace these realities. This is how you stay afloat, and this is how you will not waste your life. Let's pray. Father in heaven, now, I pray again for those thousand who will hear your call or sense your leading toward frontier pioneer missions where the gospel has not yet taken root. I pray for them make them know who they are. It may take five or 10 years for them to realize the fullness of that work, but I pray that you would cause it to happen. Then I, I pray for those who have been shocked by the sovereignty of God over sin and Satan, that you would help them to probe the Bible until they come to a fair and biblical understanding of things. And I pray for all believers in this room that they would be the kind of people who sing in prison instead of complaining every time something goes wrong. Lord, do this work, I pray. We're going to sing a great word. Our God is going to go before us now as we sing. His grace is going to lead us home. I pray that we would mean it as we sing it. In Jesus' name.